HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to, like, hot glue bread onto my body. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to enjoy it after, and I did. Food, which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, June 30th, 2021. This is our 294th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a wonderful independent marketing and media relations consultant and a new podcast host, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be curious. Seek knowledge and understanding and to experience the new. Ask questions, listen and observe, and be inquisitive. And like a sponge, take it all in. With curiosity, we can learn so much about life and ourselves and find joy, perhaps even in the most unexpected places. So stay curious. That's my tip today. Now, I'm so happy to have my guest joining me today. It is Judy Ann Wu. She is an independent marketing and media relations consultant specializing in food and travel and the host of Food People Are the Best People, a new podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Judy Ann was born in South Korea, raised in Portland, Oregon, and developed her career in New York City. 
During that time, she has worked with some of the finest chefs and industry thought leaders in the world in her roles with the French Culinary Institute, which is FCI, Food Arts Magazine, and ISI North America. Judyanne is a graduate of the FCI with grand diplomas in classic culinary arts and classic pastry arts. So without further ado, Judyanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to have you and to chat. And the first question I have for you is, are, are you cool? Are you keeping cool? Because I've heard about the temperatures out there in Portland. I know. Over the weekend, I think they said that we were the hottest place on the entire planet, which is, you know, we're not wow. used to it. It's the Pacific Northwest. I mean, we're used to living in like the misty, cloudy conditions. So it was it was hard on a lot of people. But thankfully, today it is like in the 80s. It's practically, I would say, chilly. But yeah, oh. we survived. <laughs> Oh, well, well, we're we're having a heat wave here. I mean, I just looked to see what the numbers were and it said 97 feels like 101. So, um. right. <laughs> well, I have to say New York City having having lived on both coasts, New York City heat is much more intense and uh when people are saying, "How are you surviving in Portland?" I said, "You know, I lived in New York City several years in a walk-up apartment with no AC. Like this is nothing." <laughs> I didn't yeah. have to haul groceries up flights of stairs and get on the subway. I mean, it's basically I'm in my air conditioned house in my air conditioned car, you know, living my air conditioned life. So I'm <laughs> it was totally fine. It's totally fine. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, cool. Pun intended. <laughs> um, so, so, so take us back a bit to how you got started in your culinary career. Uh, what, you know, what, what led you on, on the path initially that you wanted to, to, um, go to, go to the FCI and brought you and what brought you eventually to, uh, New York. Right. Well, you know, I'd always been a little bit obsessed with food, um, but I never really thought of it as a career. And it really wasn't until I moved to New York city that I saw that there were so many different things you can do with food. Even then, I really didn't realize. I thought, you know, working kitchens and things like that. But, you know, I had um, moved to New York. At that time, my my boyfriend was uh, graduate school at NYU Film, which is, you know, like best film school in the country. And I was so excited to move to New York because I'd always wanted to move. I just never had an excuse. And then I was there and, you know, I just started, I was working for um, Ann Taylor, their headquarters in visual merchandising, which was kind of an accidental career because I was, you know, a store manager back in Portland. It was my after college, kind of my job, my default job, uh, just because I knew I was moving to New York. So I didn't want to like start a big career. Um, and when I was there, I was surrounded by artists and you know, passionate uh, actors and people, everybody was pursuing their dream. It felt like everyone was following their bliss, right? And so I was working in this corporate job thinking, well, this isn't really, I mean, I like my job, but it's not like my bliss. And so I, I you know, had a little existential crisis and try to figure out what I liked and did a lot of soul searching and thought, well, what do I love, you know? <laughs> and I, I thought, well, I, you know, I love food always and never really thought of it as a career, but, you know, I took that leap and I went to culinary school. I, I didn't know that there was any other way but to work in food than to go to culinary school. And so I enrolled at the French Culinary Institute and um, did the whole program and really, really found my groove, like really loved it. And right away just um, excelled and then did internships, got a job right away, just started working in it. Um, but it wasn't until 
you really work in kitchens that you realize how hard it is. Uh, the fact like you never see your friends, you never, you never see daylight, <laughs> you always right. working these weird shifts and stuff like that. And so in the end, I mean, I kind of like about a year into it, I realized that probably wasn't going to be my long-term goal, but I, then I was like, well, once I got into the industry, I started talking to people and I realized there's many things you can do in food besides actually produce, um, you know, food on a regular basis in a restaurant even. So it was, it was 9-11 that really changed my career because when 9-11, when 9-11 happened, like all the restaurants shut down and the restaurant that I worked in, they pretty much laid off the entire team and they wanted to keep me as the sole person in the entire department. And and I had already been working like a jillion hours and I was a little burnt out at that point. And I said, you know, rather than rather than uh, keep me and fire my whole staff that really needs my my uh, the, their jobs, why don't you let me go and keep more of my staff and then I'll be fine. Because this was basically my my excuse to exit the culinary industry. And during that time, I was just needing a little break. And that's when I went in. I went and sought a sought an opportunity at Food Arts Magazine, and that's what opened up, you know, all these different career avenues in food. Yeah, it's it's funny our our paths are similar yet different because I was I was in Chicago after college, not exactly sure what I wanted to do, but working in restaurants, and I went to a small cooking school thinking. At the, I wanted to be a chef. Mm -hmm. And then I eventually moved to New York and dabbled in things and like discovered all these different careers that you could do um, in the in the culinary arena. And I had an internship at Food Arts. I know. And, I love it. <laughs> I yeah. Love so my, I, was there, I was there a few years, I think, ahead of you because I was there, I think it was 1999. Mm -hmm. um, but we have, we definitely, we have that, that um, experience and that love, I know, for the magazine. It was such a beautiful, amazing um, publication. And I always feel so honored to have worked uh, there. Oh, I did too. I mean, I felt so, I mean, at that time, there's really nothing like it now. There's no publication that I feel is anything like that. But, you know, for people who aren't familiar, like Food Arts was an industry magazine, true, but it was a magazine that everybody in the industry read from like cover to cover and they mm -hmm. look forward to, they saved them. And it was a real honor to be covered in the magazine. And I remember getting the internship and the, you know, they also, they always gave the internship so much responsibility. I felt like I, you know, I yeah. think of an intern, I think of like a, a young college kid fetching coffee or anything like that, but no, suddenly like you're writing articles, you're going to events representing the magazine, you know, <laughs> like all these kinds of things. I did a lot of fact checking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wrote a lot of <laughs> captions, you know, I did a lot of caption writing, um, but that's where I learned like copy editing. That's where um, mm -hmm. I got my first writing assignments, my first press trips that I ever went on. Um, I really opened my eyes to all the different personalities and the kind of career opportunities too. It was my first um, introduction to uh, public relations because oftentimes I'd be dealing with, you know, PR reps for restaurants and hotels, you know, so it was such a um, great learning experience. And then the editorial team really like, really, I felt like they really took me under their wing. Like they introduced me to people. They uh, set me up for, um, in situations where I got to meet amazing people, you know, I really felt like they were 
wanting me to succeed and giving me the tools and opportunities to succeed. It was, it was just a magical time. And I know that any, any other intern that worked at food arts at any time, they all, like I look at them now and they all, they've all gone on to these great careers. And we all kind of have this like network, this alumni network of former food arts interns, right? <laughs> right. I always talk about that when I see Beverly Stevens, who was the longtime executive editor there, um, that we should all unite, <laughs> get us right. all together. Oh, I know. I just heard from Beverly the other day. She was checking in on me because of the heat wave. <laughs> She's like, are you doing oh, okay? So nice. Yeah. So we still stay in touch. And, you know, Jim Porras was my regular editor, day-to-day editor that I, he would give me assignments, but he taught me so much about journalism. And, you know, he gave me two regular features where, where I always wrote these big features in the magazine. I always wrote the menu previews and I wrote um, the hits and flops feature, which was super popular. And those particular types of stories allowed me to interview so many chefs from around the country because he would come up with like this hit list of people that I needed to, um, you know, interview. But each each article had like, you know, eight to 10 of these very notable up and coming or, you know, kind of illustrious chefs. And it was my job to interview them. And so I had the opportunity to meet these people, you know, oftentimes just on the phone. But when I would eventually meet them in person, I would say, hey, I'm Judy and I interviewed for that story. And they would be like, yes, because for them, it was such an honor to be in the magazine. And here I was, this, this young guy who would just interview them, but they remembered me. And so right. that, those relationships served me well um, for many, many years and to this day even. And just being on the masthead, I was like, when I think about things that I'm proud of, like being on a masthead in the same masthead with like Anthony Bourdain and Martha Stewart, Jose Andres, and then Judy and Wu. It's like, what, what, like, how did this happen? You know, I'm still, yeah, I know it's incredible. And, and, and of course uh, the late great Michael Batterberry, I mean, it's uh, just working with him. I just, yeah, it was, it was such a special experience for me. And I'm, I'm glad we both, we, we have that, that we, we, when we, when we, we should have that, um, uh, gathering of us uh, intern alum. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. And they would have their, um, every year they'd have their epiphany parties and all their former interns and their, you know, staff would come and it was really like a wonderful family. I was really, really quite sad when the, you know, magazine had to close and, you know, when Michael died and it was, it was, you know, it was the end of an era for sure. But he introduced me to, um, you know, well, I had gone to school at the French Culinary Institute, but it was through his conversations with Dorothy Ken Hamilton when they were looking for this new position at the French Culinary Institute to really kind of elevate um, pastry chefs and the whole pastry scene, which was really blowing up at that time. And he had reminded her that, you know, here's Judy Ann Wu. She works at Food Arts, but she would actually be the perfect person for this position. And so they essentially created this position and this um, platform for me um, when I was there for many years. And, and through that, I, you know, I, I started this thing called pastryscoop.com and it was, you know, basically to promote uh, pastry chefs the same way as culinary chefs were happening during a time where there was so much interest in that field. Um, But I'm forever grateful for Michael for that and Dorothy, both of them, I would say were, great uh, cheerleaders and supporters of mine in my career. Yeah. And, and Dorothy was a, a host on Heritage Radio Network, our show, I think it was called um, A Chef's Story. 
Yeah. Um, I used to listen to that a lot. It was it was a really great show. So it's sad that she's gone now too. But those connections, yeah, they're they're extremely invaluable and um, it's great that they led you on your on this career path um, that you you found in the culinary world. And what led you then to go back to Portland? And and when when did you move? Let's see. It must have been like 2012. I mean, I, at that time, I had um, yeah, I had a baby. And it wasn't really planned, but it was, yeah. you know, it was it was great. I mean, I had a baby and then, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of an anomaly because I didn't really plan it. I always wanted to have kids, but it wasn't planned. And then, then the next year it's like, I had another baby. <laughs> like, all of a sudden these babies coming out of everywhere. And I hadn't planned on this. I had two young kids and um, my boyfriend at that time is a photographer. And we had this really beautiful live workspace that we were in and um, really enjoying it. I, I, brought my mom out from Oregon to be our nanny you know, because I didn't really think about childcare or anything like that. We had no family out there. Um, but then eventually our lease, he was not going to renew our lease. And so we we're like, Oh my gosh, we got to find a new place. We need to find a place that will basically be big enough for myself, these two babies, my mom and a photo studio, which was not the easiest thing to find in New York city. And he had been wanting to leave New York for years. I mean, he grew up in a small town in Colorado and it just, he'd always worked in New York, but it was like the golden handcuffs, you know, couldn't leave because of the work, but always looking for an excuse to leave, you know? So this was his excuse. He was like, okay, we got these babies. We're not going to raise them in New York city. <laughs> we have to move. We're either going to move to Colorado or Portland. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not moving to Colorado. No offense. Cause I used to live in Colorado as a young child, but you know, when it came down to it, we're like, okay, I, I I guess I, I guess we have to move to Portland. And so we moved to Portland and my kids, I had a, she was I like, they were both like under two years old, two babies really. And that, but I continued to work at that time. I had working, I was working for ISI North America. These are, you know, EC it's those people that make those, um, carbon, um, those, uh, whippers and foamers that you see, you know, you see those whipped cream, um, mm-hmm. yes. at Starbucks. that's how I describe it. Cause everyone's seen those whipped cream makers at Starbucks, but you know, for the chefs and stuff like that, they were using it for foams and carbonation, aeration, that kind of thing. And I was their vice president and I love that job. I absolutely love that job. And it was really heartbreaking to move, but they let me keep my job. <laughs> so I lived in Portland and I still work for this company. Um, they were based in New Jersey, but I, my, I was, I was based in New York and I would basically fly in once a week, every month. Um, when my, when my boyfriend also, he's a photographer was based in New York and he would fly in, um, every month as well. So oftentimes we were crisscrossing sometimes in the air at the exact same moment. Um, but, and I did that for a year before finally we said, you know, one of us should consider maybe getting a job based in the state that we live in, you know, <laughs> cause we had these two kids and stuff like that. Wow. Every, you were flying back and forth every week, every week. Which wow, people say, oh my that. gosh, that sounds horrible, right? And I, yeah. as a as a mother of Good two miles. young children, oh, I did get great miles. I got great miles. But I actually loved it because it was a vacation from being a mom, really, from being yeah. the responsibilities. It was the time that I would catch up on sleep. 
you know, <laughs> and right. see my friends. And I felt like normal. I got to take a shower. I got to dress <laughs> up, you know, for, and it was once a week. So I could look forward to it and I would make dinner reservations at all the places I want to check out. And it was only once a week, but I think it was hard on everybody else. Cause when I was gone, you know, I had this like army of people who took care of my kids, my mom, but I'd also have to get in like babysitters around the clock. And, you know, and then sometimes if both parents were gone, it was like, oh, what if one of us gets an accident? There'll be no parent, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that, I mean, that's not, I mean, it's, that's, that's a lot. And I would, I was just thinking, I, w- I remember seeing you at Star Chefs events and, and things, you know, those events. And I, I, I knew you came in for that, but I didn't realize you were coming in that often. Oh, yeah, it was um, once a month. And then many people didn't even realize that I had moved because they would see me at like all their industry events. Or right, I would plan right. my week if there was anything happening in the industry to come in during that time. So I do my work and I'd also hit all these like kind of, um, you know, openings or events and things like that. So for me, many people didn't even realize I had moved. <laughs> which was fine with fine by me. Yeah. So then, so eventually you, 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 you stopped that, all that, that commuting and um, uh, you, you moved on to working with some other companies and do you want to tell us, just take us through a little bit of that briefly? Like I know, I know you, and I know you worked with Travel Oregon and are just like the Oregon expert. For all <laughs> <advice>. <laughs> well, when I when I when I was this is when I was um I was still working for ISI and I was thinking about maybe trying to find a job here in Oregon, but I didn't. You know, I wasn't really looking. But I, I I met when I was here. I met. I kind of reintroduced myself to the Portland food scene because I was living here, but I was still, since I was still working in New York, all my contacts were still in New York. But um, you know, I was eating restaurants and people were happy to have me here and introducing me. And I met uh, Mike Thielen, who was uh, at that mm-hmm. time he was the founder of Feast. Well, he is the founder of Feast Portland, but it was he was launched this food festival, this first ever food festival in Portland. And uh, one of the sponsors was Travel Oregon. Travel Oregon is the marketing agency that promotes tourism to the state of Oregon. And they were talking and during that conversation, they, they, they found out they were looking for a new head of global communications. And they were looking for a media content that could really talk about Oregon as a culinary destination because at this time Oregon was all about Oregon bounty people were really traveling to the state for the amazing food the wine the beer this kind of that whole thing and they didn't have anybody who could really talk about it from the perspective on a national stage comparing it to you know the 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 Paris, the Tokyo's, the New York cities, you know, like as a culinary destination, which it was becoming. And so one thing led to another and I ended up hearing about this job. I had one week to put together a presentation, which was all about cycling, <laughs> totally not about food, but I had to put together a cycling, a, a promotion, a promotion, um, a presentation about cycling because that was another huge initiative. And I did it. And I got the job and um, and that was what led me to uh, leave my job at ISI and work full time. But it and it was in travel, which I'd never worked in travel before, but I've always loved traveling. And because so much of the travel to Oregon had an element of food and food and drink. It was a, it was really natural for me because that's how I travel. I know that you and I we we're the same way. So when we plan a trip, we think immediately, okay, where am I going to eat? What am I going to you know? What am I going to check yes. out? Like this kind of thing. So it was natural for me to be able to put these together, these itiner- itineraries for media, or to talk about like when here, like do this epic 
camping trip or do this epic hike and then go have this really cool beer and then drink this wine and eat the salmon. It was, you know, it was a natural for me. So I, I did that for many years, loved it. Um, but worked a lot and then traveled again, like the whole thing about not traveling. Now I didn't travel cross country, but now I crisscross the entire state. Like I've traveled extensively (laughs) every little nook and cranny, every little, you know, everything I, yeah. So when you say like organ expert, that's kind of how I became that organ expert very quickly. Yes. And, and a couple of years ago, I did a mic uh, on my show. We talked about Portland feast and I've been out there twice to the festival and it's it's amazing and um i i i can't wait to come back to portland at at some point i know they're doing something this summer with it Mm -hmm. uh with some events but um let's talk a little bit about what you're doing what you're doing now with your as an independent consultant um right (laughs) when so when when did you when did you go independent, I guess, or, oh, you know, I don't even remember now. You know, I, I should be <laughs> no, much more so. formal about these things, but yeah, yeah. Basically I've been working for Travel Oregon for many years. We won all the awards. Like I am very proud of the fact that when I was there, it won the best marketing campaign in the entire country. Right. It's incredible. Which is like, when you think yeah. about when we used to see the budgets, like New York city's at the top, right. <laughs> then it's like Hawaii, California, like there's basically all these States that you know, promote marketing to their state. And Oregon is like, you know, not at the very bottom, but like not nowhere near the top. Anyway, we we were so proud of the fact that we had won the best marketing campaign. And I felt like it was a big part of that. And so, um, and I thought, well, if I'm ever going to leave, I'm going to end on a high note, you know, (laughs) it was working really hard. And one thing that um, all my other jobs that I had prior to in New York City when I worked in food, whether it was at the French Culinary Institute or whether it was at ISI, it was um, I always had the opportunity to do projects on the side. And it was because they saw that work as being valuable to represent, to, you know, really showcasing who I am and also getting my name out there and the company's name out there and the projects, you know, to get them um, awareness for them. But when I worked for Travel Oregon, I had to very um, strict kind of no compete and no, uh, you know, conflict of interest. And so I was, I would always, I would continue to get projects with food um, because people didn't really know, you know, what I was doing. They still, um, a lot of my contacts still knew me as somebody as a food and beverage kind of contact. And so I would get all these opportunities and inquiries and I had to turn them all down, but they all sounded so much fun. And I always wanted to do these things. And so, you know, I was kind of overworked at that point and, a little bit, uh, you know, thinking I should probably not travel quite so much. So I thought, well, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a break. I'm actually not going to work. I said, I'm not going to work for like six months and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And everyone who knew me was like fat chance, <laughs> six months, <laughs> you know, cause I'm constantly doing stuff. And it's true. I it took six months off. I, my, I intended to take six months off. Um, but it didn't last that long. I immediately started getting inquiries and jobs and just kind of things. And I, and it all sounded like fun stuff that I would just do for free, not work. And so I would just do these like fun projects. And I wasn't even an official consultant or anything like that. I would just, people just hire me on to do a little project with them. And I'd be like, yeah, let's, it sounds like fun. I do it anyway. You know, if you want to pay me fine, you know? Um, <laughs> well, that's the so, ideal job, right? Right. And then fast forward, it's, it's kind of just still been that way. I mean, I took a few jobs with companies here and there, always kind of reluctantly, (laughs) because 
I was like, I really don't, you know, I, I like doing what I'm doing. And they're like, well, just give us a shot, you know, let us, let us see. And then, you know, I'll sign this kind of like one year agreements. And if you don't like it, it's totally fine. You know, no hard feelings, but we think you're going to like it. And it always seemed like at the end, it was just like, well, I do like it, but I actually like consulting more and actually work, make more money to consulting. So it's hard for me to like stay in this one position so far, thus far, you know, and it's worked out great. I haven't really had to promote my, um, what I do, which is great because I have a hard time explaining what I do to a lot of people sometimes. So if I feel like I have very, I have a lot of websites that are not public that I've created or people have created for me, but I just, by putting it out there, it's almost like it pigeonholes me into doing these certain things. Whereas I really want the projects to be things that people want people come to me because they want me to work on the project, not necessarily because they're looking for somebody to fill this hole of, you know, work that they need to have done, but they're really hiring me specifically and not, um, not the work necessarily. And the work comes with the fact that they're hiring me. Um, so I know that people often ask like, well, how do you get your clients? Right. Well, yeah, so that's well. my question from my, my last <laughs> guest on episode 293 I had on Josh Sharkey. He's the founder and CEO of Mies. And yeah, that's his question. He wanted to know, how do you find new clients and is it word of mouth or do you have your own unique approach? Yeah. The latter. (laughs) It's a a great question because I have been very fortunate in that I've not had to seek out any new clients since the day that I started consulting. Every single client that has ever come to me has come to me because they wanted to work with me, which is the ideal position to be in because you don't have to sell yourself. You don't have to say, well, hey, I can do this for you. And here's, you know, that they didn't even think about, you know, they didn't even know that they needed your services. You have to kind of really sell yourself. Well, you know, I've been fortunate that everybody who's come to me was either um, recommended to me by somebody who says you should work with Judy Ann and these are the reasons why or, um, you know, found me through a recommendation from somebody else or so they already come in. Um, they're already coming from an approach of they really want to work with me and they trust me. And then for me, it's just to say, well, do I want to work on this project? And I also get to say, well, this is how I work, which is not so traditional. And this is why I choose to be independent because I don't want to do it in the most, maybe the most traditional way. But I know from my experience that it's going to work. And if you trust that, and if you find with the, the process in which I go about it, then we'll be a good fit. And so far it's worked out great. And I feel like more than anything, I turn down more work than I take on. I'm always trying to find yeah. more free time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fabulous that, you know, you have that reputation and have built your career the, you know, to the point where, yeah, people are coming to you and you can, I mean, you can say no when it's not the right fit, but um, you did say yes to a new podcast. <laughs> kind of reluctantly, new- kind of reluctantly, to be honest. <laughs> really? Well, I'm so honored to have been one of your first guests. And uh, for people uh, listening, it's called Food People Are the Best People, and it's on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. And I believe I was on episode five, which is mm-hmm. very cool. <laughs> yeah, you were one of my first guests. And I, you know, I, well, I remember you, when you first started your podcast, I was really impressed. I was like, oh my gosh, she's got a podcast. And you were in her, and you're on like, what are, how, what number are you on? Yeah, like, I, you're 290. This is 294. Right. It's I'm taken like episode nine. <laughs> I'm still in the single digits. So very well, new, very new. 
Let me just tell you, it just, if you keep go, it just adds up as, I mean, I've just, I've just started in 2014. I've been doing this a long time. So. Right. Oh, yeah. but that's great. I mean that I love podcasts and I love listening to other people's podcasts. Um, but, and I actually really like talking to people and mm-hmm. that is a joy. So it was the thing that always um, prevents me, whether it's a podcast or starting another business or starting a project is just like, I don't want to do all the, 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 the back end work, the, the, you know, the kind of the technical work, the kind of the legal work. I don't want to do all that stuff. Like I just want to do the creative work. And this was something that I discovered about myself is like, I am a creative person and, I know where my strengths are and my strengths are not like distribution of podcasts or sponsorship of podcasts or things like, you know, like I don't want to do that kind of stuff. And here was an opportunity where someone came to me and said, Hey, we're starting this network and we would like you to host your own podcast and you can decide what it's going to be about. You can call it whatever you want. You can interview whoever you want. So it's like the perfect opportunity. All you have to do is record. <laughs> oh, amazing. I didn't, I, I mean, so yeah, so you came up with the, the title. I didn't, um, food people are the best people. I mean, oh, it's yeah. awesome. well, well, they said like, well, what do you want your podcast to be about? And I, first of all, I thought, well, you know, there's no original <laughs> podcast. There's so many podcasts and who's going yeah, yeah. to listen to, who's going to want to listen to my podcast. I'm not famous or anything like that. But, um, the thing that always, like when I was thinking about what should my podcast be about, what I loved is just people like I firmly believe it's based on that Julia Childs quote that um, what is that quote? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's basically like food people, you know, are the best people. Yeah. And when I think about people who are, when I think about food people, and it doesn't have to be a chef. It can be like a home cook, a baker, a maker, you know, somebody who's creating something artisan, a restaurateur, these, these people who kind of live their life around food, tend to be so generous, so generous with their heart, their time, their energy, their contacts. They are warm. They're the kind of people who want to feed you, who take care of you. And in my opinion, like when I, when I go to different cities, I meet people for the first time. As soon as I discover like a food person at a party or like a event or something like that, we have this thing in common. Like suddenly we are we are like two people of the same ilk. Like we get along right away and I feel connected to them. I trust them. Um, I want to spend time with them. We never run out of things to talk about, you know? And so I just wanted to share that kind of, that quality with people. And so, the, I mean, I feel like over the years, over the years, who knows how long this podcast will last, but I feel like obviously it will evolve. But right now I just started it very loose on the concept of, you know, it's kind of like, like I love, I love Jerry Seinfeld's uh, comedians and comedians and cars, you know, drinking coffee, like uh-huh. that kind of thing where he just has comedians and they, you know, they go around in the car and they, they drink talk. coffee and they talk, they just talk about yeah. their craft. They talk about stuff and whatever they've been working on and a, they're funny. So there's just, you know, it's highly entertaining just because they're both funny. But what I love most is just the banter that they have between them, this camaraderie. And so my show is just kind of a, um, a variation of that. It's just want to show, I just want to like have, if you were flying the wall, you're listening to two people talk about food, whatever comes up, comes up. Like I don't really have any scripted questions really. And it's just, you know, to hear that kind of that so that they can feel other people who are listening in can feel what makes that person a food person and therefore makes them special. Yeah. 
Well, and that you. It's great. <laughs> and you're, 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 you're a great host. Um, I, 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 I have more episodes to listen to, but you're one with, uh, Dave Arnold. Uh, you know, I think that was your first show and at, uh, food arts, uh, <laughs> alum. Right. Right. <laughs> um, okay. was, was terrific. So, um, yeah, congratulations and congratulations on all your whole career. It's, it's, it's a very cool, exciting and successfully fabulous career. So. Oh, thank you. I I pinch myself because I really don't know how it happened. And I really, um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't promote, I don't do anything. And I have a hard time even explaining what I do because I do a lot of different things. But yeah. you know, the criteria is, is it something that I feel that I could do well? Like I really, I think one thing is I understand my strengths. I understand the things that I'm good at. And I understand the things that I'm bad at. And I understand the things that I like to do. Usually the things that people like to do are the things that they're good at, right? And so I try to cut out all the things that I don't like to do because if I don't like to do it, it's because I'm probably bad at it. You know? but, the <laughs> that I'm, but the things that I'm good at are really easy for me and they're fun and it really doesn't feel like work. And so like, I think one of the, my, my, the hardest parts for me is like figuring out how to bill somebody. Cause like, <laughs> I always find it so awkward, you know, because it's a business, but I'm like, I don't right. I'm like, eh. you know, it's like, it's your value. Right. And your value is your value of who you are, but it's like, how do you put a number on the fact that it's just you and not necessarily the work, but like the factor that kind of the factor that you bring in as just you being yourself, like being attached to a project what it lends to the project. So yeah, I think that's a little, I always feel like I need to have like a, a business partner who plays my heavy, but then that's really not my style either. You know? so right. Know. Well, there's a reason we're friends. We're very similar. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, I get it. But uh, we'll take a little break and uh, we'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news and we'll have my solo dining experience in the final question. So stay with us. This is Only Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Baer. My guest today is Judy Ann Wu. She's an independent marketing and media relations consultant who specializes 
in food and travel, and she's the host of Food People Are the Best People, which is a new podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Okay, so Judianne, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. You ready? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Oh, actually, no, 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 no. I mean, dine in, <laughs> dine in, eat out, eat out. I mean, I love to eat in, but I mean, yeah, I was thinking of uh, eating inside the restaurant or like versus out. versus al fresco. Well, it's, it's very hot out. I would no, no, no. Out. I meant I meant dine okay. in. Like, I, I'm looking. I'm thinking about it from semantics. Yeah, uh, my Got preference it. Eat in a restaurant. restaurant as opposed to my house because I want somebody else to do the cooking for a change. Fabulous. Okay. How about wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Well, you know, I tell people that I am a professional drinker. Like I don't drink (laughs) leisurely. So when I'm drinking, I'm drinking for like a purpose. And so when I go out, I'm more like, I'm most likely to order a cocktail because I feel like that represents, like if once you order a cocktail, you get a sense of the whole menu. You know, you get a sense of like the caliber of the food that's to come and blah, blah, blah. You know, whereas the wine right. is like all credit goes to the winemaker or the brewer or things like that. I mean, chances are I'm probably going to drink the mocktail, but I don't order the mocktail yeah. necessarily all because, right. you know, I'm to, you know, go for sophisticated. Like, so that was a well, long answer to your short question. I like I like um, I like the logic. Yeah. OK. Tasting menu or a la carte. Tasting menu to really see what the chef is all about. Small plates or large plates? Small plates so I can eat more plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter because it's it's dinner plus entertainment. Not that the other people at the table are not entertaining, but, you know, chefs are more entertaining than strangers. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, tipping or all-inclusive charge? You know, I like all-inclusives because I don't have to think about it. But if sometimes the all-inclusives have actually lower than, is less than what I would naturally tip. So I, but I firmly believe in tipping. But if yeah. it's, if the all-inclusive includes like a, a nice tip, then yeah, make it easy. Okay. Taking photos of nature, food, or your kids with food. Oh, that's easy. It's food. Always food. I love taking pictures of food. Now, if I can get my kids in the food shots, that's fine. <laughs> but I have to, then I have to like negotiate with them for oh, what they get for okay. being in the shot. So, you know. I thought that might be a hard one for you, but that was an easy one. Okay. No, no. Um, uh, children, are, children are problematic. <laughs> food doesn't talk back. <sighs> that's great. Okay. Top Chef Portland or Portlandia. <laughs> Well, I'm rooting for Top Chef Portland because I those chef testants are working their butts off and I'm supporting them. Yeah, it's coming up to the season finale. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this season, for people who don't know, has been shot in uh, Portland. Okay, yes. two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Although I love cheese. <laughs> Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Portland? Brooklyn. That's where I, that's where I live. That's where my, you know, oh, okay. Brooklyn, all the way. Fabulous. That's great. I know I, people in Portland are like, what? Brooklyn still has my heart. Portland's where I live. <laughs> Good to know. That was great. Okay. So for industry news, I picked out an article that was in the New York Times. It's entitled, 
There are jobs in the Hamptons, if only workers could afford the rent. Unable to staff shifts, some restaurants and shops already reeling from lockdown closures are suspending service during the lucrative summer season. And this was by Sarah Maislin-Near. And this this is just a continued conversation of everything that's happening in the industry. And I know it's beyond the Hamptons, beyond New York City. It's... uh, it's just with with staffing issues at restaurants. All every chef I know is is looking for to hire people in front of the house and back of the house. Um, but this article is talking specifically with the Hamptons. How, yeah, um, I mean, this is their high high season. They have a few months where they they really do all their business, and there's a lack of housing for seasonal workers, and they're really desperate for staff and. Said there was like one article, uh, one restaurant tour uh, from Almond Restaurant um, that was a part of it saying that they're now closed on Sundays and Mondays just because they don't have enough cooks. Um, So uh, what's your take? What are you seeing there in, in Portland? Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, the staffing is people, a lot of people have left the industry. It's really hard. Most of the restaurants that I, you know, work with in some regard are all having the same issue of not being able to find staffing. And, you know, they're doing things like competitive sign on bonuses. That's, you know, uh, they're increasing Mm -hmm. the benefits packages, all these things to make it a little bit more attractive for people to enter the field. And yet still, it's still really hard. And then I totally, as far as the Hamptons article goes, the housing situation is another thing. Like we have the same situation with on the Oregon coast. There's very little available housing on the Oregon coast. And yet it's a very touristy place, especially in the summertime. Um, They can't get enough people to work at the hotels and the restaurants and all these little shops um, because no one wants to drive, you know, from the city all the way over the coast just to, you know, work a shift and then drive back, but there's not enough housing there. Yeah, did the house there shift with uh, the pandemic? Because that was, I know, with the Hamptons, I, I I believe what happened was back in March, uh, many people who lived in Manhattan or elsewhere moved, went out to the Hamptons and just stayed, which is usually right. a seasonal place. So they took a lot of the housing. So the market has changed. And um, I, is, that, is that similar situation for what you're saying in Oregon? Well, in Oregon, it's just they just don't have that much. You know, they don't have affordable housing. They don't have they have it's either like luxury homes or hotels. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like things that, you know, if you're working a minimum wage job, like if you're working as a dishwasher that you could live in. Right. So you're coming in from a ways away and having to drive. But um, but yeah, I definitely in the East Coast where people where it's close to a big city and all the city dwellers have moved out. Either they had like a summer home now that they're living in full time or they decided that. They really don't need to be in the city to do their jobs. You know, if nothing else, the pandemic has shown that people can do great work remote and, Mm -hmm. you know, even team work that, you know, normally you feel like you have to have your team together, but people just zoom in and occasionally they'll come in for, you know, like a powwow in person. But for the most part, a lot of work can be done remote. And for some people, it's they're way more productive because they get up and they start working. Like for me, I, you know, lucky for me. Um, even before the pandemic, I often worked remote and for clients that are not even in the same cities as me. So I was always quite used to working remote. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, th- I think I think that, you know, in New York City in particular, people have found out that they can do their jobs and not live there and not have to pay those sky high rents. So, Right. Yeah. Well, um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Every it's this is a continued situation. There are jobs out there for anyone listening that needs a job. And and this article also said there they there are some places that have increased their hourly pay, like like you said, to try to mm-hmm. attract more workers. Um, but it's just you know it's, just, it's for a lot of reasons, just that everyone is has re, rehiring and reopening, and they're just and people are working remotely. People have left the industry, like. And this housing situation, I mean, for all of that, it's a, it's, it's an issue, but um, I hope it gets better. <laughs> I hope these yes. businesses can find the people they need to, you know, have their, keep their businesses open and, and be successful. Right. And I hope people support the restaurants and, you know, are patient. I think I saw a photo on Instagram where somebody was a, was a restaurant and somebody was saying, please be patient. There's only like three of us, you know, like the whole restaurant. Yeah. And it's true. People should be patient because, you know, if you've never worked in the um, services industry or have never worked in the restaurant industry, you may not realize you know, how hard it is. And it's people expect, you know, they're so used to having, um, you know, service whenever they need it. And mm-hmm. so maybe they need to be a little bit more patient or, you know, t- just appreciate um, that it's not yeah. the easiest job for sure. No, I agree. And it's great. Yes, that's a good point. Glad you said it. Okay, so it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week it's at the Lobster Pot. Here's the rundown. The location, 321 Commercial Street in Provincetown, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The concept, it's a laid-back landmark restaurant serving seafood classics with a bay view. The owners are the McNulty family. So why'd I go? Well, I took a little trip out to Cape Cod, and I love lobster, and this place is an institution. So I figured I'd give it a go. Uh, My experience. uh, So... I spent the day in P-Town, as they call it, uh, biking around uh, on this bike path. It was, I went to a couple beaches. It was, it was great. I really got to see the town and um, work up an appetite. I'll say that. So um, I went for a very late, I guess, lunch. It was like three, four o'clock. Um, and uh, I got a, a table upstairs that was right next to the windows with a waterfront view. So I was very happy with that. Place was busy at this kind of off hour because it's a it's a it's a place I think a lot of tourists like me would visit when they're in town. Um, so and I had a great a great time. My server was great and um, I'll tell you what I got. So I went with their lobster with um, that was pan roasted lobster. I got a quarter pound. My server asked me if I was willing to like work a little and get a little dirty with, you know, with the the crap with the the claws. And I was like, look at me. I've <laughs> been biking around this town all day. Yes, I'm okay getting a little more dirty, out, you know. So uh, uh, I went with that, and it came with uh, an herb butter sauce and fries, and I also had iced tea. Uh, my take. So I didn't have to work that hard, actually. It came with a bib. I didn't use a bib, but I did. I had so much fun. I really love <laughs> eating lobster, cracking claws, eating with your hands. There's just something about it that that brings me joy. I think it, it's like the experience. It's not just eating the food, but the experience of it. So uh, the ambiance, it's a two-story casual place. And it has, as I said, these waterfront views of the uh, Provincetown Harbor. 
Uh, it's perfect for seafood lovers. Interesting tidbit, the lobster pot was founded in 1979, and it's known for its iconic neon lobster sign that has brought guests there over the all these years. Um, they don't take reservations. Personal fun fact, so I ate a lot of lobster while I was away. I had lobster rolls at the canteen and patio for some alfresco dining. Those are the names of the restaurants. Um, as well as I had a lot of oysters there, some Wellfleet oysters out there, which are local. Okay, okay, so the cost of this meal was $38, not including tax and gratuity. But I go back, yes, and their website is ptownlobsterpot.com. There we go. Judy Ann, have you ever been to Cape Cod? Uh, no, but I would love to. And that lobster pot sounds delish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was, I it, I mean, I, I feel like you're going to relate to this, but there's something about eating with your hands that's... Oh, I love it. Yeah, I grew up like that. We have, you know, in Oregon, it's like, you guys have your lobster, we have our Dungeness crab. And so mm. I remember when I first moved out, like I was with a bunch of my travel Oregon colleagues and they were trying to school me on how to eat a Dungeness crab. And I kind of looked at them like, all of you all, all y'all just moved here like three or four years ago. I grew up eating this. And then I, I was like shucking all their crabs for them. You know, there are tricks just like, I'm sure you have tricks for your lobster. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about how many tricks I have, but I do. I just, yeah, I love, and I love crab meat. I love stone crabs. I love and right. you grew up in Florida, so you have the stone mm -hmm. crabs. Yeah, everybody has their, yeah. you know, uh, their regional crustacean, you know. Right, right. <laughs> Be it crawfish, crawdad, whatever, you know. <laughs> well, cool. Well, yeah, I recommend recommend this spot and, and getting out to, to Provincetown um, to anyone. It was, it was a, a nice little escape from the city for a couple of days. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Joshua David Stein. He is the author of many cookbooks and books and children's books, and he has a new book out. Uh, I believe the publication date is actually today, and um, it's it's with Fiden, and the book is called Cooking for Your Kids at Home with the World's Greatest Chefs. So, and he's also formerly the editor at large at a parenting site called Fatherly. He's done a lot of things, so, so we're going to dive into that. But Judy Ann, what would you like to ask? Joshua. Yes, I know. I'm sure that Joshua has been exposed to lots of good advice about parenting. And I'm always, I take parenting very seriously. I love being a parent. I think motherhood has changed me as a human being for the better. Um, not that I was like a bad human being before, but it's <laughs> taught me, it's taught me things that I am so glad that I um, had children later in life too. And, you know, I'm, I'm always seeking um, advice you know, to be a better mother. And I was wondering, you know, what if, if he had any words of wisdom, you know, from a father to a father um, for parenting, you know, what, what would be the best advice you could give to being a father that, you know, can raise a child to be the kind of self-sufficient, thoughtful, caring, you know, human being, you know, that we want to see in this, in this world. You can raise it. Anybody can raise a child, but to raise a child that's going to be this good, thoughtful human being is another thing. <laughs> right. Well, I'll ask him. It's a good question. Um, see what he has to say. I know. Um, I mean, he's written. He's you know, he's, he's written a whole book now with cooking for your kids. So, uh, and he's 
I know, yeah, he's done other children's books. So I bet he has some good advice. We'll have to find out. Yes. Yes, that sounds great. Great. Well, thank you so much. I wish we had more time to just (laughs) chit-chat. Oh, I know. We could go on forever. Chit-chat away. (laughs) Another day. Thank you. But thank you so much for having me. It's always so fun to talk to you, Sherry. Oh, thanks. It's always it's always wonderful to talk to you too. And I can't wait to dine with you again. I don't know if you have any trips to planning to come back, but um, keep me posted. I will. You know, I will. If I if I come to if I come to New York, I'm definitely calling you. Terrific. I would I would be disappointed if you didn't. So thank you and and congratulations on your entire career. And I look forward to whatever you're doing next and and keep up with your podcast. So. Awesome. I'm proud of you too, Sherry. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Thank you. No, no, but I'm serious. I'm serious. I mean, I say it. I say it. I really, I really admire it. No, but I am too. I am too. We are, we have very similar careers and, you know, and I, I think that people don't say enough how proud they are, how proud they are of their friends that they, and what I, what I, when I say that, I mean, because you're able to do the things that you do really well, that you are good at. And you're able to do them with joy and make it fun for people. And really, you know, you're helping people. But it's anytime I see somebody um, being able to do something as a career that they love, it's inspiring. And so I hope I hope I can offer that to somebody else who might be listening. Well, thank you. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to end our show. So thank you so much. Thank you. Our guest today has been Judy Ann Wu. She's an independent marketing and media relations consultant specializing in food and travel. She's the host of Food People Are the Best People podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. The website is eatdrinkanddine.com. And you can follow her on social media at Judy Ann and at Ed Podnet. And we didn't talk about it, but Judy Ann takes the most beautiful photos, food photos. I mean, so follow her. And it's... J-U-D-I-A-A-N-N. You can also follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. And all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks, as always, to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Judy Ann. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'm taking next week off. So my next show with Joshua will be on Wednesday, July 14th. I hope everyone has a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Stay safe and well. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.